Welcome back to the Band of History. This week we sit down and chat with Joe Forno Jr. Forno was born in Woodstock, New York and grew up around the musical revolution of the 60s and 70s. His father, an influential local, was friendly with the band. Forno graduated Albany College of Pharmacy in 1973 and had a career as a pharmacist before assisting Richard Manuel and Levon Helm with their business dealings in 1983 that eventually led to Forno managing the band after Richard Manuel's unfortunate death in 1986. We talked to Joe about his career managing the band, his personal relationships with Richard, Rick, Garth, and Levon, and some large revelations about the group. From his new book, Levon's Man, The Death of Richard Manuel and My Decade Managing the Band. This is my conversation with Joe Forno Jr. So Joe, the first question I really want to start with is tell us about the first time you saw the band. Uh, if I remember correctly from reading your book, it was shortly after the Woodstock Festival, right? Yeah, it was uh, in New Paltz, SUNY New Paltz, the State University at, at New Paltz. They had, they had very good booking, college uh, concert bookings there. Bruce, Bruce Springsteen was there, and, but they had the band and... Uh, that was through my, uh, they were friends with my next door neighbor, Ben Barconi, and my friend Tim Barconi. The Barconi music uh, family owned a, a shop where they sold musical instruments. And Garth was a regular visitor there to check out the saxophones and the, that were coming in from Selmer and, and all the guys were there. I mean, all the guys in Woodstock, you know, Butterfield bought his harps there and Van Morrison got his, you know, sax repaired there. and. It was a, quite a place to hang out when I was young, but in 69, I, f I forget what date it was, but it, it was one of their early concerts as the band. And, uh, and uh, it was at the, in the gymnasium at New Paltz College. And obviously, uh, you know, they'd been up there a little bit longer hanging out with Dylan and the like. Like, what was the response to their first kind of album music from Big Pink? Well, it, people knew what was going on, but, it, you know, the period from 1964 when when Albert Grossman came and when Dylan bought his house in 65, that period from there to the festival, which, which didn't occur in Woodstock, most people know it was about an hour away, but, but that 64 to 69, Woodstock, it was the magic years of the music because there was a lot going on. Not everyone knew, but the town adopted these musicians. You know, they, they, and in the same way that they did the artists back in the early 1900s, when, they, when Birdcliff was formed and the art colony was established and all the famous painters moved there, the locals adopted them and became friends and neighbors. And so did it happen with, with the musicians and especially with the band. And they were welcomed. I mean, Levon talks about the first day he was in Woodstock and it was, it was just a shock to him how, how well received they were. And, and the town, you know, really loved those Bohemian people way back in the 20s at the Mavericks and the Maverick festivals. And, and when the band came to town, it was the same thing. So my dad had the pharmacy. And so we knew the guys in the band. We knew Dylan. We delivered to his, to his house um, way before, you know, any, even before Big Pink. And, um, and my dad was also the judge. So he was a town justice and he was a pillar of the community. He did a lot more than just own the business. And he, he was looked up to by a lot of people. He was on the town board. He was the town justice. He, he was on all the committees, the recreation, the library, the Christmas Eve program. Uh, he did all that stuff. And he became friendly with the band because they quickly showed up in front of him with their motor vehicle mischief and uh, car accidents. I mean, Richard... Richard Manuel crashed over over a, a few dozen Hertz rental cars, and and the famous accident which Levon writes about and which is in my book also, even a more detailed description, was when he drove his Corvette down the side of the police car, right outside of town, on, on and after Richard had driven his Mustang into the stone wall, and I think that was in Once for Brothers too, but but um, it was a dangerous accident. I mean, a couple of cops almost got killed. Levon coming around the turn, really doing way too fast with his Corvette. 
and they jumped into the ditch and the and Levon sides swiped it totaled out totaled out the police car and they had to go in front of my dad and my dad fined him four hundred dollars and 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 they fell right in love with the judge and, and as far as I was concerned that I was a chip off the old block you know and and uh and and that's how that happened and and then they then they left you know they went to California and but I would see them periodically when and, and Levon built his house in the seven mid seventies, and and they were around. And then of course they finally didn't come back till the reunion in in nineteen eighty three. But um, but they they were around. Garth had his house, so they never really left. But they were in, infrequent visitors back in Woodstock. But that that magic time, and then the festival happened. You know, but but we used to have stores. That catered to the local people. You could buy a television or a refrigerator, or you know, load clothing and towels and bath stuff. And you know, there were department stores, and and that was all up to the festival. And then the festival came, and it was all head shops and tie dye, and and uh, health food stores, and you know, the town totally drastically changed. I want to ask you about that. You mentioned in your book that you know. Woodstock as, as a place wasn't the same after Woodstock, the festival, you know, Dylan soon vacated the area. We've, we've heard about that, you know, not necessarily feeling safe. You mentioned a scathing article that came out against Albert Grossman, you know, is the Woodstock legacy an overall detriment to the area still 50 years later? Like it's been a long time since the festival. Is it, does it still feel the impact of that? Like I've been to the area. It still definitely feels like there's some nostalgia for that. And there's still like that touristy trap kind of thing going on in some parts, but now it's, it's been several decades overall. When you look back at it, is it a detriment? Did it, did it bring some, you know, good things to the area? What, what, what's your perspective as somebody who's been there for a long time? I think it's still the attraction. We've, you know, we've seen it go through changes over the, I mean, they were, they were writing about this back in the 1920s that the tourists were too, too many tourists, you know, when they, when the art colony was established. So Woodstock's going through these changes over the generations, but never as drastically as it has now, but there's, there's no detriment. I mean, it's still incredibly popular and nostalgic place, uh, a very cool place for people to hang out, a very cool place for people from the city of course, most of it is because of the fact that it that is only an hour from the city and, and people can come up and they're in the country and and uh, and it's a cool town. It's it's a, a very you know progressive town and and there's a lot of neat things to do and there's all the restaurants and but it's, it's gotten very touristy now. And the, the difference that I see as a as a local and a native is that there's not that relationship between the locals and the artists and the musicians that there once were. And now 70% of the town is Airbnbs or, or city people who come up either on weekends or live there full time. But the interaction is not there between, you know, I mean, musicians, you know, Levon lived next door to Haywood Hale Brune, the great CBS sportscaster who described the town to, to me and my dad as, as 16 kinds of ginseng, but I can't find a pair of shoelaces. And, and, uh, and, but, you know, those were, they were interesting neighbors and Levon had a concert with the RCO All-Stars where he invited all the neighbors and there were people sitting there in lawn chairs, the local police were there, not because of security, because they were Levon's buddies. And, and it was a remarkable collection of Woodstock people. And that's what I miss about it. It's, it's not the same anymore, but people still, you know, obviously go to the rambles and, and, and go over there with, uh, it's coming back now after COVID, but uh, the nightclubs are still, Bearsville Theater Complex is all brand new and go, going well. And the Colony Arts Center is going good with music every day, just about. So it, it's, it's still there, just not the same and, and more tourist oriented. And, and you, you know, you don't see the local people as much and you don't see them, you know, back in the day when Deanie's was open, which was a really popular restaurant, where everyone hung out. I mean, at the end of the night, Richard Manuel would be playing piano and, and maybe somebody from the local playhouse would be singing, singing show tunes. And uh, it was an incredible place. To, it was a great, that same mixture of people where the local septic tank guy would be having a beer with Levon at the bar, you know? And I miss those days, but Woodstock will forever be changing. And they all, they all, everyone who comes wants to lock the door behind them and, and not let anybody else in, but 
It's just, it's bursting at the seams right now because a lot of people moved up from the city uh, during COVID and they're not going back. Right, right. Now, back more onto, onto your career, what I found interesting uh, about you is, you know, a lot, a lot of folks come in the music world, uh, re- whether they're musicians or auxiliary, you know, characters, managers, et cetera, et cetera, because, you know, that's what they had in mind. That's what they were going to do with their lives. You came in a little bit different. You mentioned your book, you were a musician, you played, but you have this whole career before and after in the pharmacy world, you know, obviously your, your father owning a uh, pharmacy as well. And then you, you getting involved in going to school for that. And you didn't get involved with the kind of the more management and, and financial of the band until a lot later uh, in 1983, if, if I'm not mistaken, when you were first um, asked to assist with Levon and Richard and, and like their royalty issues and their tax things. Is that correct? Yes. That's exactly why. And it was because I was a chip off the block and, and Levon, you know, you have to understand that most people know that he could be ornery at times or stubborn, but he wasn't the type of guy to call up the, the accounting office in California and, and ask them what happened to his checks. And he would always, he would get people to go out there and do that for him or hire lawyers and, and many other people went and, and then he sent me out there and, and I didn't know anything, but I took a lawyer with me. And I met with Mr. Gelfand, who was who was polite to me, but stern in the beginning. He said, that's impossible. It's impossible he didn't get his checks. And and then, then I saw the checks and they were not signed by Levon. It was somebody else's signature on the back. And, and that shocked Mr. Gelfand. And I asked him where he was sending the check. And they were going to Canada. And uh, Levon owed a small second mortgage on his house. But nevertheless, he never redirected those checks. And I came back from California with a, I think it was a $20,000 check that was just about to be mailed to Canada again. And so Levon was happy. And that's how things happen. The, the trust occurred. The trust was already there because of my family. And, and I, I didn't take anything for it. He wanted to, and he was struggling for grocery money at that point because some of his, uh, some of his uh, concerts were getting, the pay was getting garnished for child support and things like that back then in the, in the, in the 80s. And, um, and they hadn't gotten together yet for the full reunion with, with the Kate brothers and, and without Robbie. But um, so I helped them out and that's what I continued to do. And I did the same with Richard, formed a corporation for him with his brother and, uh, and took, took interest in Richard and always wanted Richard to do a solo project and got him to do the getaway concert, uh, which resulted in a Whispering Pines album, which is really Richard's only solo project. And it, it's a live recording on a night in a local nightclub, but it was an incredibly special evening. And he was real proud of that. So that was where we were at with that. But, you know, that's, and, and Richard told Garth, you know, hey, Joe is really helping me a lot, out a lot. And, and they weren't happy with the other guy that was working with them at the time. There were various people who helped, but they never had like a, even when they got back together for a while there, they didn't even have a corporation. They would just go out, play shows, divide up the money at the end of the night and it wasn't like they were running a business or trying to uh keep a steady corporation going and, and some of the shows were like the show in england the, the, where they where leon didn't go they didn't they didn't they they missed out on asking him whether he wanted to go and they booked the show without him without his approval and you don't you don't do that when you're managing the band you know so you mentioned you know levon could be a little stubborn or ornery about things but uh, and and maybe like a little bit of his where he was at at that point in his life dealing with you know separating from from Lily Titus and you know child support and things we we've we've heard a lot about that even in his own book but some of the other guys like Garth or, or Richard what was their general state of mind now give or take you know five six seven years after the last waltz you know these guys are keeping busy at at different levels doing different things, but like particularly with Richard, what did you kind of gather was his state of mind around those early eighties? You wanted him to do some solo work. Clearly Richard probably could have had a very successful solo career, could have been very popular because of his talents. But like what, what I always thought, I always thought that you know, not only was a, he was a great piano player, he, he had a warmth about him that I always thought he was one of the more likely ones to, to go on a solo project or, or have his own, uh, even have his own group, you know, and play with other musicians. But 
but he was, you know, he sat around all those years waiting for the band to get back together. Why? Why do you think that? Why do you think that was? Do, did he actually honestly think they were going to get back together? Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. He knew they would, and and he was very happy when they did, and he couldn't wait. He couldn't, and and it, it you know, it showed in his performance, his looks. He he was encouraged, and he couldn't wait to sing those same songs again, and and he was a, a real perfectionist when he did them, and he 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 couldn't wait to get back out on and. And all those early tours with Cape Brothers, they went to, they did the Canada tour first and then they came down into the States. Um, and, and they were, he was, he was in good, in good voice and in really good shape. And it never, it, it peaked at the, at that concert in 85, which was not too many months before he passed away uh, at the Stratford Festival Theater show in, in, in his hometown. First time he'd ever played in his hometown as, with the band. And the first time the Stratford Festival Theater had ever had a rock and roll concert. And I mean, it was packed. And he, and he, he opened up the show with the Rebels and, and, and he had a busy night of playing both, both shows and he was really tired afterwards. But I don't think I ever saw him more happy and more content. Even I have, there's a few pictures from that night that showed him in just great shape. His high school teachers came up to me and said, are you, you work with Richard? And I said, yeah. And he, they said, oh man, we're so happy. He looks so good. And they had just followed his career for sure over all those years and they're worried about him. And, uh, and that was a big night, but, but yeah, he was real happy. I wish he had done more solo work, but that wasn't to be, but there was no signs of, of any depression or any kind of, uh, anything that would indicate that he had a problem, except that he started drinking again right. uh, on the tour in, in, in 86. Yeah, I, I've seen footage, actually. Jeremy Kelly gave me some footage from that Stratford performance. Richard's beaming. He's smiling. Uh, and yeah. it, it's really good. And he's powerful. His voice is powerful. He's performing at, like, the peak, in my opinion. one of the, some of the best performance of his life. Um, the, the other aspect of that is, Garth, I, what I really enjoy about your book is, you know, I, I've interviewed Garth. I've talked to him a little bit. He's kind of uh, notorious for being a, a hard interview, things like this. You know, he doesn't talk a lot to, well, he talks a lot, but he, you know, for like your traditional interview, people can, you know, find that a little frustrating. I, I love it. But what I like in your book is you give all these, you know, little kind of conversations that you have with Garth. And what I find incredibly enthralling about that is, just his point of view on major moments in in the band's history. We I've heard before Levon's opinion on you know or where he was and what he felt during uh, when Richard died or even Rick. But like you have a conversation in your book where um, you and Garth go to that Seven Eleven just shortly afterwards, uh, and I found that. Yeah very insightful and like his opinion about it and what his worries were about, you know, what that shadow would cast over the group. And, you know, I, I talked to him a few years ago about Richard and it's still obviously a pain point. It's still incredibly emotional for him, you know, for folks that are listening that want to get a little bit better insight to Garth as somebody who spent a lot of time with him, what do you, what do you think are some of Garth's best qualities outside of obviously being a musician and being a genius at, you know, what he does and one of the best that's ever done it. What did you glean from, from him that, you know, is super interesting. Well, he, he certainly was a gentle character. He certainly is. And, um, a kind man, but he was, he knew what he wanted and, and he, he would make demands of, of how he wanted things to be. Um, I remember him, I remember being in LA with him for the first time and we were doing a show there and, and he says, now you know, we were on an elevator in the hotel and he starts, he raised his voice and he says, now we're in LA now, this is my hometown and I want everything to go very smoothly. And I, I you know, put the pressure on, you know, and, may, and I was already planning on things going smoothly, but that, you know, elevated the, the, the mission at that point, but he, he, it was the same way when we were in Florida at that 7-Eleven, he says, I want to get out of here. I want to get out of here now. This is not good for the group. I don't like what's happening here. The satellite trucks were pulling into the motel and he and I got away and talked about it. And, and, there were, and the, the poignant thing about that was he, that meeting, that short meeting, but he told me how much Richard 
loved me and had told Garth that he, he was happy with what I was doing to help him out with his financial affairs. And, and so for Richard to tell Garth that was, was uh, powerful to me. And I think it sort of um, led Garth to believe that, you know, I could take care of his business too. And, and that's what happened after, after Richard's death. Now, with Richard's suicide, you know, it's obviously a very devastating and defining moment in, in the band's history and for them personally and for you personally. You know, a lot of folks point to historically like the drugs and the alcohol. But in your book, I think you give some great insights into, you know, what touring was like at that time and how that could have ultimately affected Richard's mood and, you know, potentially a trigger um, for his, you know, his death. Can you give insight a little bit into that tour? You know, you mentioned things about cutting costs and the pianos and, 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 you know, Richard being upset on a large part of that and like that ultimately making him very upset. You know, what was that like to deal with and seeing it up close? It was a perfect storm that, that, that week. And, uh, there were a lot of things bothering Richard, uh, um, his significant other. There was problems with, with uh, Arlie at that time um, because of his drinking and, and her uh, own, own problems. And there was also Richard's mother, Gladys, was in a nursing home in Canada. And even though Donald had kept in touch with me and kept in touch with Richard, letting her know that she was stable and okay, and I thought those would be positive messages for Richard to get while he was in Florida, he, he was concerned and I think very saddened that he couldn't be there and that he hadn't gone, he hadn't been back in Canada since that one concert in uh, 85. But the other thing that happened and, and a, a very much of, and well, also the, the death of Albert Grossman uh, less than two months before was devastating to Richard. You know, he was the only one who voted to keep Albert when they voted out of that contract with him. And they paid him, I believe, $800,000 to get out of that contract. And, and uh, Richard was the only one who voted. And Albert supported Richard a lot. And when Richard came back from California, he was hospitalized in, uh, in the early 80s. And, uh, and Arlie helped him. And Albert helped him at that point uh, stop, stop with his drinking. And, and, uh, and he really had a lot of respect for Albert. And I was with Richard on Super Bowl Sunday. That, that year when Albert died on the plane going to, going to Europe. And I knew I had taken the call at Richard's house and, and I handed him the phone and I said, Albert died. And, and I, I could see that there was gonna, I knew there was gonna be a reaction, but I had no idea that he would be that devastated. I mean, he turned white and he really was, was extremely affected more than I thought he would be. And I think that played a role. It was, Albert was like a father figure to him as much as he, Albert was not liked by Levon, that's for sure. And that goes on and on and on. But, but that was another factor. And then the final contributing factor was the, the cost cutting. And that was done by their, their manager at, at the time, the guy who was handling the business, Bob Ilgis. But, you know, they made decisions, he made decisions that were, not up to par with the band's legacy. Uh, even, even as, in my opinion, as much as taking that show, uh, Gordy Singer was the booking agent. And you know, when you're on the road and you got two days off, the, the booking agent calls and says, by the way, I can get you into this other club over, over here and, and on that night off. And, and you often say, you often push your pressure to say yes, when it should be a no, especially if you don't know the place. It was a tiny little lounge hooked onto a, a motel, uh, a cheap motel. And, and some big people had played there, but the people were so packed in there, they could touch Richard. They were buying him drinks and setting him on the piano. I mean, it was an awful night. And it was one of those ones where they had to do two shows, which Levon always hated. But nevertheless, uh, that was, and it was a $5,000 gig. I mean, come on, you know, it's not something they should have been doing. But the, the main part of it, the whole tour, it was zigzagging across Florida, back and forth, back and forth. And, and, and even down south in the other dates, it was too many miles in between. You know, it was tough. Even Garth screamed one night. He says, it's too effing hard. 
you know, to, to Bob. And they, they, dis, they, they cut the equipment truck. So that means Richard couldn't handle, take his Kawhi electric piano with him. And he was incredibly upset about that. Incredibly upset because they were forced to use rental pianos. Most of them were broken. Most of them were the short the CP70s uh, that were short keyboards instead of the other ones. And uh, he went through three pianos on the day of that show, the, the day that happened when he, when he committed suicide that night. He went through three different rental pianos that day. And he was also drinking. And he made the bus stop uh, you know, for Grand Marnier. Uh, and that was a concern. It was definitely a concern to me um, that he was drinking, but there was no other concern that it was more serious than that, uh, other than he was very depressed. He, and I talked to him a couple of times. I had been there with my folks. Uh, they went to the show uh, in Hialeah a couple of days before, and I, I went home to Woodstock, and then I kept in touch. A couple of changes were made in the road, roadies crew and the, and the traveling crew, and, and Richard wasn't as familiar with those guys as, uh, as he was with the other, you know, you know, there was guys who, you know, the other Andy might've been, uh, the other road, he might've hung out with him that night, or maybe there wouldn't have been, might, he might've had somebody to talk to, or, you know, who knows, you know, we all have gone through a million analysis of that. If I had stayed in Florida, would it have made a difference? And it, apparently it maybe would have happened another time. I don't know, but, um, but it, it was a perfect storm of different events not solely because of the cost cutting, but that was a big part of it. And he did not want Bob to be involved with the band. And the other people didn't have as many problems with Bob. And I, I, I know he was trying to do his best, but when, you, when, it, when, we, when we got together after that and we decided to keep on touring uh, and formed a new company and everything, we made a commitment that we were going to stay at better places. We were going to use tour buses. We would have an equipment truck and we would, we would make new music. And that was the big commitment I made with them that if I wanted to be around, I didn't want them to just be an oldies act. I wanted them to make, get to a point where they have new album coming out. But that was an issue. The, the cost cutting, the Albert Grossman issue, the fact that his mother was in the nursing home, all of those things added up. Now, the drinking thing, you know, this, you know, he, he had been, he'd been staying away from drinking for a, a long time and, and he obviously started again and you said it was a concern. What was the opinion of the other guys in the band though? Like, obviously, you know, Richard was probably better not drinking. Now he's drinking again. Was there concerns about that? Were there talks? I know like it's a different generation. I know it's like, it's a man's business. We don't get involved in that. It was a, it was a, you're right. It was a different time. It wasn't, it wasn't interventions and I'm very familiar because I'm in recovery, but there wasn't, there wasn't interventions and, and, uh, you know, and you can see it in the last waltz. You can see it in the movie. I mean, they're patting him on the back when he's able to complete a sentence. And, and, uh, I know, I know his, I don't think his first wife, Jane would be upset at me saying it, that, that she, she often feels like they were watching him die, you know, and, and, and there was no effort to, uh, and, and later on, it became very different, you know. I mean, Levon got went to, went to treatment. Uh, uh, Rick and Elizabeth did also. So it's you know it became more less taboo uh, and and more of a uh, a thing of of uh, acceptance, you know, that, that alcoholism was a disease. And Richard had you know he had been drinking when he was a teenager, you know, but. It started on, it actually started on the Crosby, Stills, Nash tour. They opened for Crosby, Stills, and Nash in the summer of 85, about 30 shows. And that led into the tour on their own down south, uh, following that, the tour with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And for the first time he, in years, he was drinking on the Crosby, Stills, and Nash tour. It was a concern, but he was performing well. Um, you know, it was one of those things, some... I think I even, I, I believe I wrote in the book that I saw him drinking $50 brandy snifters full of Grand Marnier, right? Spilling over the top and he didn't appear drunk. And that's the way alcohol works for somebody who is an alcoholic. You know, they can drink a lot and you, they don't necessarily show it. And, and uh, so it was a concern, but not, not of a concern where there would be an intervention like there would be now or or to get somebody into treatment overnight or give them an ultimatum or 
you know, it wasn't that kind of uh, uh, thing going on. You mentioned it briefly, and, and I think that's people have been very critical of the last waltz for showing folks like Richard in that light or, you know, the lack of Garth in it. What, what do you feel about the last waltz? Like, I'm not obviously asking you to, you know, chastise the film, but knowing these guys and having seen the film and the last waltz arguably being the most important document in their legacy for, you know, keeping them relevant. What do you, what do you think of a film like that? Well, I wasn't around for the business part of that, but, but I know yeah. Richard, you know, he, he, the funny story is that he wore that suit, that plaid suit, which he called the pizza suit. He said he wore it specifically so that the cameras would stay off him. <laughs> so he was happy that he wasn't in, in the edits. And uh, that always made me laugh because people complain about why wasn't Richard, why, why is he singing I Shall Be Released and you can't see him? And, and he seemed to be funny about that. And and kind of happy that he wasn't on the, on camera. Maybe he, he knew that he probably wasn't in great shape at that point. But uh, I think, you know, obviously, like, like Levon said, the film editing was done by Robbie and Marty Scorsese, and the other guys didn't have much of a hand in it. And, and that's as much their fault as, as it was. I'm sure they could have, you know, I'm sure Levon's input would have been welcome, except that he got in his his car and drove the hell fast as fast as he could back to Arkansas. <laughs> For sure. Hey, I love that suit, by the way. A lot of people like that suit Richard's wearing. Um, now, go, going back now to post post uh, death of Richard, the concerted effort. Now you're you're fully in the fold. Uh, you're making a lot of quality of life changes, like you say, better hotels, better arrangements for the tour. One thing that you said there that's interesting is the commitment to new music, different things that kind of got in the way, but we didn't really get that full uh, album until 93. So between that period there, that's that's a pretty big chunk of period from 85, 86, or sorry, 86 to, to then, you know, there was the Sony deal, the, the Pyramid, why why did it take so long for them to make music? And when it eventually came, it was awesome. And Jericho is a phenomenal album. But why did it take so long? Well, I think the Levon's answer was on uh, on the Today Show when Brian Brian Williams interviewed him, and Levon said, you know, Brian Williams said, why did it take so long? He said, I think it was a record budget. And and Brian Williams goes, yeah, we all know that story, but that's probably was it. We we were looking and. Uh, we were also trying to recover from the loss of Richard. I mean, there were there were many shows during that early period where there was no no keyboard player other than Garth. He did it all, which you know, as we know, he was capable of doing. But he there was no new piano player for quite a while, and and even some of those shows were billed as Helm Hudson and Danko and Friends uh, in the early part right after Richard passed away, and and there was some pushback. There was some some concert promoters who said, no, no, you can't call it the band. And and Garth, and because Garth was there, Levon always believed you could. He says, as long as Garth is with us, we're gonna call it the band. And he was musically correct on that. And and David Hinckley from the New York Daily News, who I know and who wrote the Richard Manuel obituary, the best one of them all that you can't find on the internet, but I've posted it a few places. And he, he basically told me when the Jericho album came out that you know nobody ever replaced these guys. Nobody ever replaced that sound. And it's still very strong, uh, even though it's just Garth and, and Rick and, and Levon, but with other, other musicians. Um, but getting another piano player was a big thing. We thought we were great with Stan Zaleste and that was another tragedy that occurred. But it just took long to get that deal. And I, I, David Fishoff was the one who helped out and I have to give him more credit than anyone for getting us the Sony deal, which eventually fell through. Uh, they just were taking too long on it. And part of me was I wanted them to make money from a new record deal, but I also wanted them to get it out. And I and maybe we could have waited with Rick Chertoff longer uh, for those more songs to come in, for them to be happier, for Donnie Einert to be happier with, with the material that we had or maybe we could move on. And David and I decided, let's move on. And I was not happy with Pyramid. I was, as I write in the book, I was constantly notifying Capitol because we were still hopeful 
to get back with capital. And they had made a big investment in Bonnie Raitt at the time, at least that's what they told me. And, uh, and who knows? And there were other things about touring even there where we were sort of looked on as, as a half a band, you know, without some of the, without Richard and Robbie. Well, well, you guys are, you know, we'll take you on some of the shows and, and we won't take you on the other ones. And no, we want to do the whole tour with you guys. It was the Allman Brothers at the time. And, and, and I, I, I mentioned to Johnny Podell that if they had other members that weren't with them anymore too, and it was sort of a blunt comment, but it was true. But there were other people that said, and there was a couple of promoters, uh, one of them over in Berkshire, in Massachusetts in the Berkshires, who told me, you know, it, the band is different. You know, it's a much more democratic, much more each guy is participating. It's not like a, a guitar player on the, on the Rolling Stones or Charlie Watts has taken off now, you know, and they're replacing him for the next tour. And he said, the band is different. And I, 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 I could see their side of that. I mean, you know, that could happen, but it, it ultimately worked. And, and, and you know, they, they were never going to reach the peak that they had already in, in, the, in the previous years, but they got a second start and a second, second chance uh, because of the Jericho project. Did you get a sense that they knew Obviously, you never want to admit it, but did Levon, Rick, and Garth know? It's like, we're going to keep on pushing. We like doing this. We like each other. We like making music. But regardless of what we do, we're never going to reach that peak that we did with maybe music from Big Pink and the Brown album. Or do you think they were still, they still felt that, you know, they could come out with some of their best material? I, I, thought, they, I thought they really believed that they could, except that the music business had changed a lot too. And, and we had to do things like, interviews for newspapers and radio stations and and i got some of those on tape with levon that he was the first ones he ever did because he never had to do them in his whole life the, the promotion was that bob dylan and the band were in woodstock and they're going to go out on tour and that's all the promotion you needed back then but now all of a sudden there was competing with other acts and selling tickets and, and Levon had to do that promo work and Rick did it, Rick did it too. Garth really didn't do that, but, but Rick and Levon had to cut their share of uh, radio ads and, and do their share of interviews with, with newspaper guys. And that was a different part of it. So they knew it was gonna be tougher and we had to hire publicists and all that kind of stuff to push the Jericho album. I promote, I co-promoted the book that Levon wrote with the Jericho album. So they were released in the same month and so we were able to go places and have both things going on. And Levon still had his film career too. So, and that was escalating. So we had to, I had to schedule the dates and, you know, and Rick had to go off on his solo projects uh, uh, when Levon was working on his film. So Rick had Bruce Houghton up at Skyline Music and helped him out a lot with his bookings during that time. So they were, you know, the band never worked really uh, you know, they weren't like a Willie Nelson going out for 200 nights a year. They, they never did that at their peak. Um, and so it was like that again. It was starts and stops, tours, a few, you know, a few cities, come back home. Levon would go off on his own and, uh, and Rick would go on his solo gigs. And, and that's how it worked. It was, they sort of knew that, but they felt the music was just as good as ever. And I think, I think Jericho in many, and many of the songs come as, come very close, if not as good as the early albums. I mean, Blind Willie McTell, uh, Atlantic City, um, you know, um, Caves of Jericho. I mean, Hale Milgram, the president of Capitol Records said he, he, he was in tears almost when, when he listened to Caves of Jericho and listened to Levon's voice. He thought it was as good as anything they had ever cut, you know. You were there during that period and really helped usher in that kind of research of, of band uh, fame, what, you know, starting really with that Ringo Starr All-Star Tour in 89 through, like you mentioned, Jericho, the book deal for Levon, then the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. What was the general energy of the band? Were they feeling like revitalized uh, after that kind of uh, that period of time that they were finally now kind of getting their due again? There was more buzz around them? Well, Absolutely. And uh, the best example I give in my book was the, the Bob Fest uh, 30th anniversary Dylan show at Madison Square Garden. It was just one song we did when, when I paint my masterpiece. And on the way home on the bus, it was late, it was late, late it was dark. It was in October, I, I believe in October. 
and we got to Levon's house with the bus and I was cleaning up the bus and getting getting off the bus and I thought I was just going to go to my car and everybody else was gone and Garth came out of the shadows and he came over to me and he gave me a hug which was very rare expression of emotion from Garth and he just said to me he said that was huge and it was it was without Robbie and and it was a Dylan event and it, it was and they were very happy with that gig and very happy with the Clinton inauguration and very happy with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, except Levon didn't show up. But let's let's uh, unpack that a little bit. This is one of the most interesting parts of the book. You know, it's it's pretty juicy. It's you know, you mentioned that there was around that time there was a possibility of Robbie joining the band again for those twenty shows, um, and that it was very real because you had been contacted by his lawyer. So it wasn't just like hearsay. It was actually a possibility and. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Because I think a lot of fans would find that I, that's new for a lot of people. That that sounds crazy. Like the possibilities, obviously. Um, walk us through some of that that timeline. Well, it was a quick and easy phone call leading up to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the band was doing really good. And the other thing, you know, we we were invited to the Clinton inauguration, and Bob was there. And Robbie wasn't there and, and Clapton introduced us as the band at the Bob Fest show. And it was a re it was the, they had reestablished themselves as who they were at the time. And uh, people told me that, that them sitting there on the stage looked like Mount Rushmore rock and roll at, at the Bob Fest. And, um, but it was a quick phone call uh, that I got from Nick Wexler and he said, Robbie's interested in being with the, with the group again. And he didn't say anything about the offer, but uh, at, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as the, and when I was down there for that the day before, uh, Steve Martin, our agent, had told me that there was a, a possibility of 20 shows uh, with John Cher being a promoter uh, and that Robbie was willing to do them, you know. So who knows whether it would have ever come off, but I was excited about it. Um, I did speak to Levon about it. Uh, sort of, certainly Rick and Garth were okay with it, but you know, it could have been the reason why Levon didn't show up that night. I'm not actually sure, but um, his resentment for Robbie was, was very deep. And, uh, but I, I looked at it as a business proposition and I did say to Levon, we're in the driver's seat here. You know, we, we have this group, we're doing well, we got a new product out. We got your book out. He just came home from a, a rehab experience that was incredible for him. He looked healthier than he'd been in his entire adult life. And you can look at the back of his hardcover book and see the most beautiful picture of him and his wife uh, in, in their whole adult life because they were healthy. And I was very proud of that. And no one else had done for, for him what, what I did for him at that time. And he, he was on fire. He was playing great. He was, uh, you know, just incredible. His performances were great. And there were 800 reporters at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that night. So it would have been an incredible presentation for, for Levon to be there and to have those people see him doing so well with the products out, with the record out, with the book out. And he doesn't show. And I, I you know, the head of the chapter says, you know, that old saying that his dad told him as a kid, you know, you ought to let a business thought run through your head once in a while. And, and, and for me, it was paying off the mortgage on the, on the barn, you know, on the new barn. And, and we would have paid that off. Now, some people said the offer wasn't good enough and that, that was to be negotiated. But, and, and who knows whether it would ever have all happened. But if Levon had been into it, I think it might have. And, uh, and that was a lost opportunity and a bad business decision by Levon. Yeah. Two questions on that. First, why, if, if this is true and, and if Robbie was interested, right? Why do you think, why do you hypothesize why Robbie now in the 90s? Like he had, you know, almost a decade to potentially put out that, you know, hand to be like, hey, I'll, I'll come back and play. Like, do you guys want to play together? Like in the early 80s when they did the original. But I think he missed the guys and he saw that it would be really being very, fairly successful. I never talked to him about it, but I think that's what it was. We were doing pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally, some triumphs, you know, after all the tragedies. 
And, and I, I think that was it maybe. Do you, and then the second part of that, you know, I think a lot of folks see the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You, like, you can watch the video on YouTube and the performance and everything with Clapton. Some people feel like it's a missed opportunity with Levon not there. Like Levon, in a lot of ways, is the heart of the the band in a lot of ways. And not seeing him up there performing the way with the band at like arguably one of the biggest you know pieces of their legacy. Uh, you know, obviously, you you talk about resentment and how that kind of changed things for you and and Levon a little bit. In hindsight, not, now, not a little bit, a lot, a, a lot, yeah. And my my desire to continue was very diminished at that point, and and I just couldn't. It was the first time that Levon and I disagreed on something, or or he didn't show up, you know, because uh, we had made that commitment a long time before that, years and years of of of, of him saying that he'd be there, and he was there, you know. And I had to go to him sometimes when he maybe he had maybe he was flush with cash after one of his movies. And, and Rick and Garth weren't. And I had to go to him and say, Levon, we gotta, we gotta help out Rick and Garth. He says, oh, really, we, do we need to do that? And I says, yes. And he would agree to do those things. And, and that was not something that Garth and Rick wanted me to talk to Levon about, but that's the way I did behind their back and to get him to, to do something. And that's why people call me Levon's man. I was the, the, the title of the book is in quotes, really should be. Because I, I wasn't his man. I was just, I was just uh, trying to get him to, trying to get the four-star general to say yes. And he was the boss in a lot of those instances. But, but uh, you you mentioned around that period, uh, the, the rehab, the you know, and then after that, you kind of kind of caught him. Well, not caught him, but you, he was using again after that. The the the, the, the night of. The night of that ceremony. Why? Do you think he was just angry and he didn't know how to express himself and that kind of led to it? No, it was just a, it was a relapse. It's called a relapse. And it's because of it's because of resentments. And when you understand, uh, you know, understand addiction and, and anger and resentments are the things that take you down. And, and I believe that Levon carried those resentments to his grave. And I know he died of lung cancer, but those resentments didn't help. And, and, I, and, you know, I'm not saying he's wrong about the business end of it and, and who ripped him off and who didn't and what contributions he, he should have been uh, allowed to have uh, because of what he did with the band. I'm not saying he's wrong about that, but I, I think he didn't, was never able to move on from it. And you have to do that when, when you have addictive disease. And, uh, and he didn't. But, you know, Garth that night, he didn't, you know, when I called Garth that day of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and told him that I was, I was just blown away. I, my jaw dropped when Levon told me, Joe, I'm not going to be able to make it tonight. And I called up Garth, who was already at the Waldorf with me. We were down there a day ahead of time. But I had people in limousines waiting for Levon to pick him up and bring him down for that day. And uh, Garth said, worse things have happened. And I knew immediately he, he was talking about the 66 tour when Levon decided to bail out and not go to Europe. But it was, and, and Garth maybe was right. It's not a big deal. We'll get through this night like we've gotten through a bunch of other ones. And he, he sort of expected it, you know, he, maybe he did. I think he, he wasn't shocked when I told him, let me say that. He just said, well, worse things have happened. And he, he just went on with the day and did his thing and Rick did his thing and Robbie did his thing. And, Sure, it was a big loss that, not, that Levon wasn't on the stage. But we had it all arranged with, even with the show's producer. We, we sent it down a stage plot so that they, they wouldn't have to even stand near each other, you know, when they were performing. But it, it all was a lot of planning. And, and Levon had his tux, he rented it. And I was with him, you know, so there was no hesitation leading up to that day. There was no doubt that he was going to be there. And he changed his mind at the last minute. Now, soon afterwards, you, you, you know, you called it, you called it quits. Uh, and, you know, you had, you had mentioned in your book, you had to deal with some of your own stuff, getting into recovery. You were really burnt out. And then you went back to your, uh, what, what, what did uh, Levon call it? Your, uh, your day job or, day yeah. Job. And had a, you know, had a kind of a second birth and, and had a successful career at that. What I'm really interested to ask you about is, 
you know, obviously the band continued uh, until until 99 and, and then Rick passed away. But then also Levon arguably had some of the most success of his career later towards his death with, you know, those string of albums, solo albums that he did and, you know, Grammys and things of that nature. Yeah, Bill Flanagan, I think it was Bill Flanagan on CBS Sunday morning said that nobody had a better encore than Levon Hill. Yeah, but you didn't talk to him much. You say that in his book. You only had like maybe one more conversation after you kind of left with with him, right? Like, wh why, why was that? Was there just... Not Nothing that you guys had to say to each other anymore like what you know and how do you how yeah, do you... I had another career yeah and 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 you know I was able to I was able to give up the music business and I was happy to I had to do it I mean I was getting killed I mean it was, it was a very I was very in, in really bad shape at the end of that and I, I took him through I made my commitment through the Woodstock Festival to, and that was another thing we we were not invited to that we were not asked to do the festival and I wrote John Share a letter, which he told me he was in tears reading uh, about how could you this you could throw a stone and hit Big Pink from the stage, and how could you not have the band? And obviously they wanted new groups. They wanted Nine Inch Nails and Green Day and Aerosmith, and and obviously I could see that that Michael Lang and John Share wanted to do that, but how could they not have the band? And and he he got back to me the same day, and he said you got an hour and a half worldwide pay per view. So I was honored to have that. And Levon ended up not being real happy. And and I, you know, a lot of people like that show, but when I see it, I see an angry drummer who didn't want to be there. And he, he wasn't happy that Aerosmith was making five times as much money as the band was. And and uh, but that was the way it was. That was that was business, you know. We got a very good offer and and we played the show, and it was only nine miles down the road, and Levon was back home watching a game on TV you know, within a few hours. So I thought it was a great gig and I thought it was great that we were asked. Otherwise we would have been over with Melanie and Richie Havens over at the original site that weekend. Instead, we got on the big show, you know? And uh, so it was one of those things where, where I knew I was screwed when I went over to tell Levon and he, he said, now nah, tell me something, how much are we getting paid? Now nah, tell me something, why? you know? And, and I knew I was, I was screwed, but we got along, but there there was not any contact, uh, and there was money owed, but there was no bitterness, and I I forgave him for it. I told my lawyer to stop. It was uh, to be honest, to be very honest with you, there was a collection effort being made by an attorney that I had hired to get some money back, and and Levon had declared bankruptcy several times, and I just told the lawyer, I said, forget, I I have another career. I'm moving on from this. And I, I can't do it anymore. I don't, I don't want to do it and let it go. And, and I did. And I felt good about that. And I, I didn't carry any resentments. I love leaving on Helm. I, I love him dearly. And I miss him every day. But yeah, we didn't have any, only one conversation after that. And, but we, he sent flowers. And when my dad passed away and when the judge passed away. And, and it, was, it was, I felt his compassion, even though I didn't speak to him at that time. But he went on and he did very well on his own. And he could have done that early on. I mean, there was that time when I was in a van with him and Harold Cudlitz and the Colonel was saying, ah, Levon, you know, his Canadian accent says, ah, Levon, you don't need these guys. You don't need these. And, and I was shocked. And I, I thought that Levon's, my, my, my feeling on Levon's acting career and his music career was that they went together. And if the band was doing well, his acting career would be better and all the rising tide lifts all the boats. And, and, and I, that was my philosophy and that's how I moved forward. It wasn't easy, but I think I helped Garth and Rick along the way because otherwise they would have been on their own and, and Levon would have had a solo career and I helped hold that together. And they did three albums, you know, I think the Jericho one is the best one, but that's, I'm a little biased for that, but, and I was the one who chose the, the country boy for that, you know, and Garth was, I went to Garth. I just, that was the only, the only person I needed approval from. And he just looked at me and he, I think he thought, geez, Joe's pretty good at producing. <laughs> and, and he said, that's an incredible idea. That's a very good idea. And I was just so happy that I suggested it. And, and it was a good addition to Jericho. And, and, and so John Simon helped us out with it. And, and it was good having Elliot Landy back on the job. And so it was all one big family, the Jericho project. And then I left. Yes. Yeah. So, so lastly, as, as we kind of wrap it up here, Joe, you know, 
you've had a remarkable life. You've done some very cool things. Um, why, why, why a book now? Why did you decide that this was the time that you, you wanted to write part of your story? Well, that's an interesting question because it really started, you know, 10 years ago when my folks passed away. But I, I had already written down some stuff and I didn't mention it in the book, but I, I kept an audio diary of some of the important events uh, surrounding Richard's death, the Clinton inauguration, the Bob Fest, the Stan Zales passing away, the fire that destroyed Levon's first barn. And I, I, had, I would read into a little Olympus uh, micro cassette recorder. And, and just I just threw them in the closet. And I actually had to buy a new one because the old one had all rusted out and everything with the batteries. But uh, I bought one on eBay and I started listening to those. And, and, and I realized that I had witnessed something. And I witnessed a period of time uh, with an important group of people. And I thought that history needed to show what happened during those years, especially no one had ever really detailed the story about Richard's suicide and what happened afterwards. And, and maybe there'll be, I mean, I've talked to other people, Butch Diener, who worked after me uh, as a road manager. And I said, Butch, you got the next five years, you can take it up to 99 after when Rick died. And, and he says, you know, I, I should do that. And I said, yeah, you should. But it, it was part of that. And I just thought I had a story to tell. And I thought my upbringing in Woodstock helped also with and, and people have gotten back to me and said they really liked the story about my mother growing up in, in, in Woodstock. And I thought, I thought people would, would be very upset that they didn't open up the page one and it was about the band. Well, it turns out that it was with the suicide thing. But, but you know, they thought it was going to be the band front to back. And, and I took a, took a sidestep there and, and talked about my history in Woodstock and my mom and dad's, which was important to me after they passed away. So I, th I thought it was a good story, and I'm shocked how, how well it's been received so far. I mean, I got people telling me, you know, they just couldn't put it down, and they, they really liked reading it, and, and it was a story that they hadn't heard before. And some people learned a lot about the band that they didn't know before. So I wanted to tell those, and I even wanted it to be funny, like Garth with his comment about French toast being good any time of day. You know, th those things are funny to me, but they were poignant. And Levon telling me those stories about, you know, about the guy who was in the, in, at the football game when he was a kid and his, and his dad said, you know, see that guy over there? And the guy had a t-shirt on and a tornado was running roll through in a couple hours and the temperature dropped 30 degrees, 40 degrees. And the guy was sitting there with goosebumps and, and his dad said to him, a wise man never leaves his coat. And if you look at Levon in a thousand pictures, he often had a coat draped over his shoulders and it could be, a, it could be a sunny day and he wouldn't have his arms in the sleeves even, but he would just, he always, even if it was a clear blue sky day, he always grabbed his jacket and I always was amazed by that. But I thought those kind of things were a little behind the scenes kind of uh, personal stuff that people might like. Appreciate it. Well, I, I read it one sitting. I would, you know, you are completely right. I think this era of, the band is, you know, underrepresented and they, in my opinion, made some of the best music that they ever made. Uh, so I want to thank you personally for writing it. I think it's very important. Um, and for the audience uh, that hasn't heard about it yet, that will definitely be going out and purchasing it. What's it called? Where can people find it? Where can people buy it? Well, it's an independent publishing deal that I did with uh, Amazon KDP. So it's only available on Amazon. You can't go to your local bookstore and find it. But that's the way that, you know, and, and, and Amazon is a big behemoth of a company that some people don't like, but they do the book publishing thing very well. And it's a great, it's a nice book. It's a nice to have or the, and the ebook is available also. And, and there's 36 pictures in the book and they come out in color on the ebook. And so some people like to read it on the Kindle, but it's, it's available through Amazon only. And that's the way the book business is going, you know. So Levon's Man, Woodstock, The Death of Richard Manuel, and My Decade Managing the Band. You can find it on Amazon. I'll include links in the show notes. Uh, definitely go and read it and, and leave a review. Uh, thank you again, Joe, for taking time out of your day to come and chat with us. I know my audience is really going to enjoy this interview. And um, thank you for sharing your story with the band. You're welcome. My pleasure.
Thank you, everybody, for listening to The Band of History. I really hope you enjoyed this interview with Joe. You know, his book, Levon's Man, The Death of Richard Manuel and My Decade Managing the Band is is out on Amazon. Uh, you can also buy a book, physical version, or read it on Kindle Unlimited. I devoured the book. It was really interesting. You know, this era is underrepresented, like we've talked about. And just his storytelling and some of his first-hand experience about being there with the band was really um, eye-opening. And his experiences are, you know, a breath of fresh air, especially considering, you know, a lot of the times we hear the same kind of stuff about the band over and over about, you know, their heyday in the late 60s, early 70s. So make sure you go out and support Joe and his book. And thank you again for listening to the podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time.